Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all his other health and medical stories. Last week, we told the big third transplant story. Yeah. And we talked about how you had your third kidney transplant, and a week and a half later, we got married. <laughs> yeah. And where we ended things last time was that after we got married, you had to go back to the hospital and kind of recover a bit more mm -hmm. from the kidney transplant. And so I think we should pick up right there. You were back in the hospital and they were monitoring you. How did that go? How did the transplant go as it was new? It really went very well. Once the sleepy kidney had woken up, it started really, really turning along really, really well. Sometimes it's a thing with sleepy kidneys where they like never quite fully wake up or some other metaphor. Like it's a thing that they worry about. But in this case, once it kind of figured out what was going on and what it was doing, it started working very, very well to sort of a surprising degree. My creatinine was the lowest it had been in years, including during previous transplants for a long time. Everything looked really good, and they really checked me out very, very thoroughly. The only sort of downside that I remember is that because of all of the different kinds of drugs that I was on, the high doses post-transplant, my ligaments were a little bit uh, more fragile, and I slept funny one night, and I ended up actually tearing a little bit some ligaments in my knees. So I was in <laughs> unexpected pain in an unexpected part of my body for a few days. Uh, and we took care of that. That's had some minor lasting effects. Sometimes heavy exercise for me um, means my knees get sore more easily. I did some physical therapy, I don't know, about a year after that surgery uh, to help strengthen things up. And that really did help. But Sometimes they get a little bit more sore more easily. That's the only real downside. Everything else was just working really, really well. I was producing a ton of urine. My numbers looked great, and they were really happy, and so was I. Yeah, that's a thing that's I want to try to convey to people, but it's really difficult, is just how fast things turn around. And it's also something in the moment that's very shocking because you haven't realized how much you've adapted to. Right. You know, I remember going in to see you in the hospital just a few days after the kidney had been working and your color was just so different. You mm -hmm. looked like way more alive. Yeah. And that's a weird thing to realize. Oh, Ari's always looked really sick because <laughs> yeah. you, you hadn't looked sick to me. I'd been living with you for years. And so I was used to you looking pretty pale, pretty drained mm -hmm. all the time. And you kind of have that. That's normal. And Ari's fine. And then you see you with a working kidney and you look so much brighter and again there's color in your cheeks your eyes have a little more sparkle there's a little bit more energy to your presence yeah i feel like those are kind of the most noticeable immediate things but it's that you've adapted to this life with a really really big limitation with your lowered energy with having to do dialysis for four hours every day and put mm -hmm. that into your schedule and suddenly you having all this new energy and not having that big limitation and it almost feels like, wow, I never realized there were this many hours in a day. I never realized that we could do all these new things. It's this really 
exciting and fast and immediate turnaround. Mm -hmm. And it really throws into sharp relief. Oh, I really got used to a lot of stuff back in the kidney not working years. Yeah, and me too. Yeah, like we were both really used to that. It's especially weird, I think, as a patient to being in the hospital when you're recovering from surgery, your body's energy is all focused on healing from a large incision, from all the trauma of surgery, and there's a massive infusion of chemicals that it's not used to. There's all these things going on. And some of the medications also make you tired or do interfere with like cognitive function a little bit. And all of that stuff is going on. And at the same time, oh, I have a working kidney. My everything is being cleared and cleaned better than it's been cleared and cleaned in years. And so even with all of that impairment from being exhausted from surgery and all the medications I'm on, I still feel more lively and more awake and sharper than I felt in a long time. It's a really, really weird contrast in, in that week or two or three or however long post-surgery when I have both things going on at the same time. And how long did you spend back in the hospital after you had to go back after the wedding? My memory is it was about a week. I think it was less than that. My, <laughs> my doctor in his sort of typical dry humor sense, we, we went back in to see him two days after the wedding for another checkup as promised. You know, he, he greeted me and said, oh, nice ring. You know, <laughs> he, he knew how big a deal it had been. And, um, and then he said, okay, we just really want to make sure there were some things left unlooked at and there were a couple of things we wanted to make sure were okay. And so let's just pop you back in. And we said, okay, whatever you need, you know, you, we were not going out of town. You were here. You started working at legal aid, if I remember correctly. Like, yeah, that's true. Right then. And so you would come from your brand new job to come see me in the hospital in the evening, which was really nice. Yeah, that was interesting because, you know, you start work at a summer job and nobody knows you. And I think they have a certain idea of what your life has been like for the past several weeks. Oh, right. you just finished law school finals. And I remember sitting in some office with a supervisor and I mentioned something about my husband and, oh, when did you get married? Oh, uh, last week. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Wow. So many, so many things going on. And I said, well, that's not even the biggest thing that happened in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And we got married, right. You know, I'm sitting here realizing that there's actually a story that I forgot to tell, which is that in the lead up to our wedding, because we were going to be going to Australia for you to have an internship there, I had been spending a fair amount of time trying to set up dialysis in a clinic in uh, in Sydney. And I'd been spending quite a lot of time for most of May, most of April, maybe even going back into March, in contact with them by email and um, very occasionally by phone. It's pretty hard to line up when I was available with when they were available. But it was a thing we were working on. And it was friendly, but slow moving, like uh, like we spoke about last time. And then the transplant office called on May 11th and said, hey, we have a kidney for you. And so we went and did the transplant. And we were pretty good, or mostly you were pretty good about knowing everybody that needed to be notified. You know, you told my family, you were in touch with them. You told your family, you were in touch with them. You got all of your Columbia stuff taken care of. Everything was good. The people who were going to sublet our apartment, you know, you took care of 
all of those things. And we hadn't yet reached a point where we were going to need to, say, put a deposit on an apartment, even though I'd been speaking to some people, so that was not a problem. But the one thing that I had been handling in its entirety was dialysis, and both of us just completely forgot about it. And really would have forgotten about it forever. I probably would have, it would have been July, and I would have said, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> whatever happened with that? Except about three or four days after my transplant, it was very late at night, and I couldn't sleep because when you're in the hospital, it's hard to sleep, you're not really exercising that much or using very much energy, and you're just sort of sleeping when you can and when your body needs to, so it's some time. It was maybe 11 or midnight or something, very late for me. And I was sitting there, and my phone rang. And that was weird, especially at that time, because anybody who would be calling me would be like, well, he's in the hospital, we don't want to bother him. And I didn't recognize the number. And so I answered it, and this very nice woman was on the other end of the phone who had a very charming accent. And I realized, I don't know this person. And it was the nurse from the dialysis clinic in Sydney asking for me. And she was very politely saying, we were a little worried. We haven't heard from you in a few days. And you're supposed to start dialysis here in about two weeks. And we need to pin some stuff down. Is everything okay? And I just started laughing. And she was very confused. <laughs> and I said, uh, I am so sorry. I forgot to get in touch with you. I'm actually in the hospital right now recovering from a transplant that I got three, four days ago. And she paused, and then she started laughing. And she was so excited. And we were both kind of excited, like, we don't know each other. We've kind of emailed. And she said, well, I guess you don't need this then. I said, yes, in fact, we're not even going to be able to come to Australia, which I'm really sad about because I've heard that your country is wonderful. And she said, oh, it's great. I hope you get to come here someday. And we kind of like talked about that and then realized we were on an international call and maybe we shouldn't just chat. And so... She congratulated me again. I thanked her so much and apologized again for, you know, not letting them know. And um, we hung up and I have never spoken to them again. And it was this really kind of touching thing. And it was also an interesting moment because, of course, everybody's life goes on. But that wasn't really, like, for me, the message. It was also that, like, that was a moment where I realized... I have been working so hard on all this dialysis stuff, and dialysis has been such a mainstay of my life. And with one phone call and, you know, and a surgery and some other stuff, that was gone. I didn't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. You know, just poof. If I wanted to travel overseas, I could just do that. I didn't have to take a machine because you can't take the machine overseas anyway, but that didn't matter. Like, I didn't have to do any of that. And she seemed very nice. I would love to meet her, but I didn't have to because all of a sudden I was unburdened. And I had been unburdened before, but it was this amazing freeing thing. And, you know, it was midnight in New York. You were home asleep and needed to be asleep because you were going to be working or taking a test the next day or something. And I was like, I remember kind of all of a sudden being very energized and turning around and wanting to talk to somebody. And there was Nobody. I wasn't going to like wake up my roommate who was also recovering from surgery and be like, oh my God, guess what? Because it was kind of a complicated story and they wouldn't care. It was just this little tiny but also enormous victory that I just kind of had in the darkness of my hospital room there. And it was just, it was great. It was really nice. I mean, I was sad that we didn't get to go to Australia, 
but I was really, really excited that if and when we were going to travel, I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore, at least for the life of the kidney. Yeah, there were lots of little things like that. Because it's one of those interesting things, you know, you're always hoping for a transplant, and you could get a transplant at any time if you're mm -hmm. on the list. And so that's a thing that everybody wants. But in the meantime, you have all these routines that you're part of as a disabled person. Okay, we've got this scheduled, we've got this, we've got this, and you're connected to all these people. Mm -hmm. And so you end up telling the dialysis supplies delivery person, you don't have to come here anymore. He got a transplant. Right. And they're so happy for you. And it's weird. It's kind of you end a bunch of relationships yeah. in the happiest possible way. But, you know, we ended our relationship with your dialysis nurse. Mm -hmm. She went on to take care of other home dialysis patients. Yeah. You, know, you had the nurse that was assisting her that we said goodbye to. And kind of all these people who were really nice, who really helped us, who were rooting for you, that was suddenly kind of bon voyage. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. It, it was really awesome. And also, you know, it was a little sad, like, oh, I've been knowing this person and working with them to a greater or lesser degree, maybe at that point for years, and, you know, good luck. <laughs> and it's a strange thing, too, where you say, like, in a really positive way, I hope I never see you again. And they say the same thing to you, and then you go on with your life. And so do they. Yeah, there's something about this that makes you... Notice and feel how much you're connected to so many other people and to strangers, too. You know, especially the organ donor process, the anonymous donor process. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that event in Seattle where there was a kidney transplant available and you were one of two people to get it. And how suddenly our lives became kind of caught up and related to lives of people we never, ever met. Mm hmm Right. There was somebody out there who did get that transplant. Mm -hmm. And this story that was really sad for us was a big new chapter for them. That was right. the day they got their transplant. And I hope it worked really awesome. And I hope it turned everything around for them the way this one did for you. Yeah. And you received this kidney from an anonymous deceased donor. And there's that feeling of like, okay, there's somebody out there. There's this other family there that's done this amazing thing for you and for us. Mm -hmm. And that sense that you really are kind of caught up and touching against lots of other people's lives. Yeah. I mean, for me, this ties into, I think, one of our themes for this podcast, which is that everything and everybody's connected and also sometimes disconnected. You know, everybody's going about doing their thing and sometimes they're having their victory and that means that I don't get something and sometimes I'm having my victory and that means that somebody else doesn't get something. You know, I don't know if there were other people who needed organs from that maybe matched this specific donor that didn't get them, that's not something they would tell me. So I'm really glad that I got what I did when I did, but it's also possible that somebody had a near miss there. And so I hope that later and very soon later, they got their time and their organ and their turnaround. We do know because we were told that your donor, you were one of three people to receive organs from this donor. Right. And so I talked about last time about how it doesn't just help you. You know, it helps me. It helps the rest of your family and loved ones to have you more present and active in their lives. Yeah. It helps kind of everybody you interact with and the students you teach and all the, the good that you do because you have an organ. But that's triply true. Mm -hmm. And so the decision that this person made and the decision that their family made, it saved three lives, but mm -hmm. it positively affected... So many more. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to be part of that group or that ecosystem 
and you've never met the other recipients. We've never met the family of your donor. Right. People probably have a lot of questions about that. Do you want to talk about how the double blind thing works from the donor side? Okay, yeah. That's actually a really interesting system. And I, I don't know how long it's been in place, but it makes a ton of sense to me. So the idea is that if you have a family member that uh, died and donated their organs or sometimes other body parts like uh, skin or corneas or, or things like that, that you should get to have a lot of choice in how much you know about what happened and even more importantly, how much other people get to know including recipients of the donations of your loved one. Right. The concern here is you want to protect everybody's privacy. Yes. As the patient who received a kidney, you might want to know everything about these people and what was this person like and how was their childhood and what did they do this, then, and that. And you <laughs> yeah. really want to respect the privacy of everybody involved. You don't want a patient to go picking at the family who just lost a loved one. Right. And you also don't want them... And this happens a lot in movies, right? Tracking down the yeah. the organ recipients and, <laughs> you know, stalking or being weird. And that, that does not happen. No, it's, it'd be almost impossible. Right. So they really protect everybody in the process. Everyone's anonymous and everybody's privacy is protected. Right. So they usually call it a double-blind process. And so I think just to sum up, that means that the donor's family can't know anything about the recipient, unless the recipient says it's okay, and the recipient can't know anything about the donor unless the donor's family says it's okay. And there's an office or a department that handles that kind of thing. And I think there may even be a certain amount of um, double blindness in that office where there's like one person who talks to donors and another person who talks to recipients so that there isn't even somebody in that office who knows who is connected to who, but I might be wrong about that. A few years ago, we actually got contacted on the donor's family's behalf by this office saying, would you be willing to, I think it was, receive a letter from them? And, you know, it was interesting because I had always thought, oh, of course, I want to be really open, but I had a moment of hesitation, and I don't even know, I don't even know what was behind that. Uh, you and I talked about it, and it was, I think, pretty clear in that conversation that both of us were like, yeah, of course, but I'm a little bit worried, and I don't know what we were worried about, really. So I, I called the office back, and I said, yes, absolutely. So we eventually did get a letter. It was, uh, it had been edited by the office. It was an envelope that it was a handwritten letter that had been opened and some things had been blacked out because they were personal details, um, including, I think, an address and a couple of names. And um, it was both a really nice letter to read and a really hard letter to read because it was from a parent talking about their child who had died. And at that point, it was about five years post-transplant, and um, it, it was really touching. It was really meaningful to me and to us to read about 
the person who had given me a kidney and what they were like and um, some of their hopes and dreams that they weren't going to have anymore. Um, they also had asked if I could write a letter, and that was really difficult to do. I went around in a lot of circles, and you and I talked about it. I think I called my parents and I said, what would you want to know about or read about in this kind of letter? You know, I'm not a parent. I don't, I don't know. And what I ended up writing was a letter that was a lot about gratitude, I think, of course, but specifically in that because of the transplant, I've been able to do these things. Here are some of the things I was doing and had tried to do before this transplant. Here's a little bit of my medical history and some of the struggles that I had had that this transplant ended or mitigated. And here's what I've been able to do since. And so it was my attempt to say thank you for allowing me to do all of these things. And also to try to show, I guess, you know, I didn't just take this kidney and then sit on the couch. That I I took the kidney and am really, really thankful for it because then I went out and I've tried to do some things in some small ways to maybe make the world a little better around me, but also that even if that hadn't been true, and I, I like to think it is a little true, but also just that I was unable to do so many things, and now I'm able to be a more active human. Um, you know, this is hard for me to sort of talk about and articulate because I think I've said this before, that receiving an organ is, you know, it's, it's might not actually be life-saving in the, the most pure sense, where like uh, a heart transplant is. You know, I, I was on dialysis. I was alive. But it is so incredibly life-changing that it's so big that saying thanks or thank you is never enough. It, it's, it's just not the kind of thing that you can use words or I think maybe even actions to show gratitude or appreciation for. It's... um it's too big. It's like, I, I almost view it as the kind of thing like that I can't ever do enough to repay that if that were my goal. So it was, it was really nice to have that sort of interaction, I guess, to be able to share that letter and say, here's what I've been able to do and thank you for that. And to read about the kind of person that I had received a, a kidney from. And I think that would be true, like, no matter what they had said. Mm-hmm. You know, it it doesn't matter. Just knowing, you know, I already knew they were a person and a human, but just hearing more details about a little bit about what they're like, filling out their their personality and my image of them, um, makes them more real, which I appreciated. You and I have talked about that in a pretty broad sense when you say makes it more real. That we've both one of the coping strategies we've had with your disease is. Oh, Ari had a kidney transplant, but you know, not really. <laughs> right. And even just now you said, oh, you know, you still would have been alive, but people die on dialysis. It puts tremendous strain on the body. The average life expectancy on dialysis is not good. No. And I think you and I both 
walk back from that a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of, oh, all this really dramatic sounding stuff happened, but you know, not really. Yeah. But taking time to really think about that and think about how really your life was saved, how really everything changed, and how real people did this really amazingly kind thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's hard to talk about and hard to acknowledge because it's so big. And I think it goes back to that thing we've discussed a lot, which is that when you say, well, hey, I have these big dramatic things in my life, and then everybody goes, oh, my goodness, are you okay? And the, well, no, I'm not okay always. Often, but not always. And that's not comforting. And so in our desire to make other people comfortable, we, yeah, well, you know, I have this life-threatening disease, but it's okay. And like, it is okay, <laughs> but sometimes it's not. And what I remember about you writing that letter was you spent a lot of time, like you said, you called your parents to try to find out what a parent would want to know. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way you're ever going to make up for their loss. Oh, no. You as the organ recipient are never going to be so awesome that that won't still be a terribly sad thing for them. You're not going to make up for all their sadness. Right. So you want to say all these things that will make them feel the best about their decision as they can. Mm -hmm. And we included a bunch of photos. We had photos from our wedding. We had photos of you graduating later. Right. We had photos of you teaching with kids. There's one I remember of you in front of a marimba with a bunch of little kids swarming you while you showed them how the instrument worked. <laughs> right. That was part of a, a grad school class about teaching very young children, three, four-year-olds, sort of how to experience and, and learn about music. And we had a day where we had brought in actual kids to practice on. And so there are these kids who are about the height of the keyboard swarmed around me playing. But I remember we wanted to include a lot of photos that showed all the things you were able to do with the working kidney, the teaching, the accomplishments. And that was part of the story you told in the letter too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I hope, because I don't know, I hope that was the right thing to do. You know, there were a couple of phone calls back and forth with that office. It seemed at one point like, Maybe the family wanted to meet, and then I stopped hearing. And so I don't know what happened with that. And that's by design. We're not supposed to know. Yeah. So I'm curious, but um, I can't push even if I wanted to. And, you know, that's, that's okay. That's their, their prerogative and their, their life. But basically the entirety of our interaction was in two letters. So we talked about you trying to tell them about all these things that you did after getting the transplant. Yeah. So I think we should talk about them on the podcast too. Okay. What did you start doing after you got the working kidney? <laughs> well, um, I think I mentioned that I had been researching or planning to um, start just taking a few classes just to try to slowly work towards finishing my undergrad degree at the City College of New York because they were close by to where we lived. And then with the transplant, I kind of adjusted my expectations. And I really went back and forth about this. I thought, well, maybe I should just go halftime. And then I think after visiting or maybe speaking with the chair of the department, I think that I just decided, you know what, let's just do it. So after a little bit of dithering, I decided to just go full time as a music major. And I was transferring in credits from a lot of different institutions. And that was a little bit challenging, but it, it really worked out in the end, especially because, and this was weird, 
I had always been intending to be a music teacher and had been in a music education major. Occasionally, I think I've said this as a performance minor, but because I had attended conservatory programs or conservatory style programs, I had a lot of lesson credits and ensemble credits, like a lot, a lot of those. So many that the smartest move for me to graduate from City College more quickly was actually to declare a performance major, which was strange. <laughs> it was odd because I had always been intending to be a music ed major. But at that point, my goal was simply get my bachelor's degree finally as quickly and as easily as possible. So I actually ended up auditioning so that I could be a Bachelor of Fine Arts candidate, which was their more prestigious performance-based degree program. And usually at City College, you audition for that program. And if you're accepted to it, then you start on this performance-based path in which you start taking really intense lessons. You play in all these ensembles. City College is a little bit more jazz-based in that way, and I wasn't, which kind of didn't matter because I already had all of those performance credits. I had, I think, twice as many ensemble credits as were required. I certainly had more than enough lesson credits. All of that was just ready for me to get this performance degree as long as I could fill in the other gaps in requirements. And for me, that was almost all of the general education requirements. So I took two lab sciences. I took some history classes. I think I tested out of an English class. You know, there were things like that. And I also had to take a few music theory classes. I had to take a couple of like ear training classes to finish up that sequence because I had had it interrupted at my previous schools. And I had actually never really gotten to take that much music history. So I took several music history classes, which were surprisingly fun. Um, I kind of always had known they were going to be, but it was, it was a really nice time getting to just kind of learn about Beethoven and whoever else. So what was that like after these three transplants, after all this health stuff, all these setbacks? to now be going back to being a college junior, essentially, in your mid-30s. There are ways in which that is super, super weird, and there are ways in which that is super, super normal. When I was at Central Washington, which was the last time I had gone back to school, I had been in classes and in a studio, in many cases with students who were roughly the age as people that I had just been teaching. And that was weird, and we talked about it then. But now at this school, I was not even in classes with people that age. I was in classes with people who were much younger than me, much younger than those people had been at Central Washington. Like, the people from Central Washington were starting to, like, get married and have kids, and I was in classes with, like, 18-year-olds. And I was... 30 something. And that was a really big disconnect. I think one of the times that that really hit home was there was some time I was kind of hanging out in the hall with some other people and kind of connected to nothing. 
one of the I was gonna say kids, that's not fair, but one of the one of the people we were hanging out with just started opining about how he just really wished we could live in a world with Pokemon that was just like Pokemon. And oh, wouldn't that be so great? The thing is, I was enough older than he was that I had completely missed Pokemon. Like, totally. In fact, my dad knew and probably still knows more about Pokemon than I do because he was an elementary school teacher. Right, he had to stay up on the trends. Yeah, when that stuff came out and he would ask his kids about that. And I had not been teaching during that time. I had not been interacting with kids. And when he said that, everybody around him either agreed or disagreed with his <laughs> his theory that it would be so much better if Pokemon were real, but they all were intimately familiar just by living in the world and being the age they were with the Pokemon oeuvre. And I was like, yes, Pokemon is a thing that exists. I have heard of that. Isn't there one called Charizard, I guess? And I felt really, really old. And, you know, I was in my 30s. I'm not that old, but I felt incredibly old at that moment. And there were other other things. Like, it, we were just so much different in age that it was strange. And I found that I often socially ended up hanging out more with grad students or occasionally even with professors. I was, in fact, older than one of my professors. And that was a little odd. And I think that at a previous point in my life, I would have been really uncomfortable with that or upset by it because I had spent a lot of time sort of comparing myself to other people and really feeling like there was this path that was the correct thing to travel along and that I had kept having to like take off ramps from and pause and wait and that I would have been sort of jealous of this younger person who had not had to deal with the things I had to deal with. And so here he got to be professor and he was like 28, but I was 33, I don't know. And I was his undergrad student. But I didn't really feel that way by that point. I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. Good for him. And he had stuff to teach me. So cool. Teach me, man. It was fine. It was noteworthy. You know, I realized, wow, okay. So we're at that point. I'm really glad that I'm finishing my degree. So that was like the weird stuff. But the non-weird stuff was it was just school. And honestly, I was still pretty good at it. I mean, <laughs> I went to class, I paid attention, I took notes, and then I took tests or I did whatever. I wrote papers and I did really, really well. And I had a lot of fun and I learned some stuff. I will say that even though I just made this claim, like, I was totally cool with how old I was, there was also this specter in the back of my head that I just had a transplant, it's going really well, but these always end so quickly. I don't know how long this is going to last, and the first two were living-related donors, and this was a deceased donor, and statistically speaking, living-related does better than deceased. So I have, like, the worst kind, and... The other ones really didn't do well, and so maybe I'm just not made for transplants. And this sort of panic would set in every once in a while. And it was often triggered by something small. I think we've talked about sometimes I focus on little things or littler issues or traumas to focus on and worry about instead of the big things. But there were a number of times where I just completely flipped out because I had a two-page paper. And I had written it, and it was good, and 
part of me knew I was going to get an A, but part of me also knew, well, but this isn't like, maybe it's not worth an A at Lawrence, or this isn't the best work I can do, which is sort of the same thing, but not always. And especially I was terrified for sort of two related reasons. One was that if I wasn't pushing myself to be the very, very best and write, say, this two-page paper at the highest possible level that I already can write it, then I am not actually gaining the benefit of this education. I'm just going through the motions to get a degree, which I need to and I want to, but that if I'm not actually learning something, then is this worth my time and my money? Because, oh my goodness, the second thing, which is this kidney is probably going to fail right away tomorrow. And then what? I haven't learned anything. And so <laughs> in some ways, that was another normal thing about going back to school for me is that it was another sort of, it's very school and I like school, but also terrifying in the back of my head. How long is this going to last? Both of us, I think, had that feeling. You've been so unlucky with the first two transplants. Yeah. Not just all the complications. You'd gotten so sick. You'd been hospitalized. And I think we both had that sense like, okay, run as fast and as far as you can and get mm -hmm. everything you can done as quick as possible so that we've made the most of however long this lasts. And every time you went in for a doctor's appointment and they said, your numbers look great. This is the best checkup you have ever had as a patient in your life. Here's this great news. Here's that. We were really shocked. We kind of didn't know how to take it. <laughs> yeah. But why are you holding that other shoe over there? Right. We had that expectation. And it really took a long time to shake it that this was a very temporary thing. It took a long time to accept, oh, this could be a transplant that works for you for years and years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really seemed to be. I think the other thing, too, is that, you know, we knew it was a high-risk kidney. They had done extra stuff. I went and did more photophoresis. I did a number of extra little treatments. And so while, yes, I was having those appointments where they were saying, this looks great, looks, looks fantastic, I was also not totally in the free and clear. I had a number of biopsies to make sure everything was okay. I had a number of small treatments over the course of that year or so. And whenever there's anything that's not just take your pills and go about your life, it raises my general tension level a great deal because that usually leads to something worse. Right. Any follow-up appointment, you think, oh, is this the end of the kidney? Yeah, a lot. We should also say, because you mentioned the high-risk kidney, they did do several tests months out yes. to check for any bloodborne illnesses you could have contracted. You were completely fine completely fine. I was really, really grateful for that. And of course, all this is in the context of you being in your second and third year of law school, which is only more intense. And so you were doing tons and tons of work and very, very busy and very, very stressed. So you had this really intense situation going on also. And here I was going like, my two-page paper isn't, isn't good enough. <laughs> and um, you would say, like, it totally is. I read it. It's great. And, like, I would know that it was, but I would still have that, that terror that was rooted in, what if I'm not wringing every last drop out of this education that I'm trying to get? That took a while for me to understand. Mm -hmm. Because, like you said, I read the paper. This is great. You're going to do great. This is undergraduate city college. You are a really smart, capable person. You're going to get an A. Don't worry about this. Yeah. And it was sometimes hard to take 
the very genuine freak out you were having seriously. Yeah. Because every time I'd say, it's fine, you're going to get an A, and it was fine and you got an A. Yes. And the next thing would roll around and you'd still be freaked out about it. Right. And figuring out what that was all about and where those feelings were coming from was a challenge. It wasn't so easy to figure out what the heck was going on and why you were freaking out about pretty easy school assignments. Yeah. And I mean, I sometimes totally knew and sometimes totally didn't know that I think that sort of subconsciously there was always that, oh my God, my kidney's going to fail specter in the back of my head. But I basically never said that. And only sometimes was I even actually consciously aware of it. And, you know, that's not great communication. That makes it really difficult for you to understand what's going on with me, for me to understand and communicate what's going on with me. It was it was challenging sometimes. I mean, it wasn't unmanageable, obviously, but weirdly, that was the hardest part about going back to school. It wasn't even about being in my 30s. It wasn't any of those things. It was about, can I do this? How much time do I have? What's going to happen? That feeling of uncertainty kind of descended on me. And that's this weird counterintuitive thing, because when you're on dialysis, it's awful. And I think we've chronicled pretty well how awful it is. But as long as it's stable, and especially because I was young, it was stable. You know what's going on. There's not likely to be any crazy thing. Unless I had gotten an infection or something, which I never did. And so I was just fine. Like, not actually fine, but I was stable. It was normal. We knew what the next day was going to be like, and the next day, and the next day. And in this weird way, and I feel like I'm complaining about the transplant, and I, I am not, in this weird way for, I don't know, six months, a year or so, having the transplant freaked me out because it was so much better, and I was able to think so much better and do so much, and all of a sudden I had all this promise and hope and life given back to me. And so then I was terrified that I wasn't going to have it anymore, that it was going to be like Flowers for Algernon or something, and, <laughs> you know... Oh, this is so great. I finally get to experience life to its fullest. Oh, never mind. Now I'm even worse. And um, that didn't happen. And I'm really glad it didn't. The fact of the uncertainty never goes away. It's not like a year out, your doctor comes in. Here's your certificate of your transplant's going to last forever. You earned right. it, buddy. You. <laughs> it's not like now we know what's going to happen. Right. But it does become less of a panic point as time goes on, mm -hmm. you, the uncertainty kind of slips down to this background thing that is, of course, true. Something could happen. It might not last forever. Mm -hmm. But you don't have that sense of emergency, like, oh, this is a tiny window and it's rapidly shrinking and I better make the most of it right now. We're still making the most of it, but I think we don't have that sense of it has to happen by tomorrow. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good place to leave it for now. Okay. We did get some comments in listener mail that were all very complimentary of your parents. <laughs> I agree. They've got big fans. People really liked that episode. Uh -huh. I'm really glad about that. Yeah. Because I really liked that episode. Me too. I'm so glad your parents recorded it with us. I was really happy to get their story or a bit of their story and their perspective. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad other people have liked it. Yeah. So thank you for the Martha and Glenn fan mail. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm sure they will really appreciate it. You know, I'm really glad we got to do that episode, too. It was really fun. It's one of my favorite episodes. I liked getting 
further perspective on our story and getting other people's stories to that was that was just really great and i think i hope at least that it added something funny thing is that mentioning my parents just now reminded me of another tidbit or story that I forgot to tell last week when we were talking about the transplant and the wedding. <laughs> um, I've talked a lot about how I really like to try to keep my health stuff separated from everything else and not impinging on everyone. And so when people were going to come out for our wedding, which was a week and a half after transplant, Lots of people, especially my family members, were like, oh, great, we'll be there for the transplant and we'll be, you know, how, how's Ari doing and all that kind of stuff. And we had to really say, he's good, but we'd really like this visit to be just about the wedding. And everyone was actually really cool about that. And I, I, I know I said that to them and I know that many of them are listening right now. And so I want to say again, like, thank you, because that was really, really great. We want to just have our wedding. And yes, this other thing had just happened, but... We wanted to have our wedding and have it separate. But there was one way in which it was unavoidable that it be a little bit entangled with my health. And that was because they were still a little bit concerned about sleepy kidney, I was doing, it wasn't exactly a 24-hour urine. I think it was like a 72-hour urine where I was collecting all of my urine every day, measuring it and then collecting it again the next day. And I was calling these numbers in or emailing them or something. I was keeping my team very updated. Right. It was the return of the urine jug. It sure was. That had been with you for so long in your life. <laughs> and how, how could you have possibly ever expected that it would not be part of your part of your life at this joyous moment? Well, exactly. It was also like, well, now that it's been about four years since you've peed and you're starting to pee again, here's your jug. And I kind of remember looking at it and thinking, oh, hello, old friend. But the thing was, you know, we got married in Central Park, and then we were going to go straight from there to our after party. And we were going to go from the after party straight to a hotel. And so that meant that that jug had to come with me. And I remember really debating, like, well, how do I do that? And you weren't going to carry it. And I wasn't going to stand up there like, doing vows and things, holding it, which meant that we had to give it to somebody. And so <laughs> I thought it was a really small wedding. I think we had less than 18 people attending. And so I went to my dad, my trustworthy, sometimes benighted father, and I said, hey, I need you to hold something for me. <laughs> and I don't know what he thought I was going to ask but I don't think he thought it was going to be a urine jug. And I said, so I'm doing this thing because my doctors need to do it. Can you hang on to it? And he looked at it and he looked at me and he said, sure, I'll carry your pee for you. And, you know, he was amused by it and we were both amused by it. But I thought that it was sort of, it kind of encapsulated a lot of things about my life, my relationship with my parents, um, our actual life that no matter what, this is always there. You know, like it or not, generally not. This was pretty low key, but it's always there. And it, you know, it was in a paper bag. It wasn't anything gross or weird. It had handles. It just looked like my dad was carrying a shopping bag and people were carrying other things. But of course, even then we still had one little thing. And um, 
I'm really glad he did that for us. And at the end of the after party, as we headed off to the hotel, he said, you know, here's your pee back. I think I actually had to borrow it from him one time during the party. But, you know, he did that for me. And it was it was relatively unobtrusive. And I wanted to make sure <laughs> that I included that um, as part of this sort of record, because it is, like I said, it does kind of encapsulate a lot of those those things that we've talked about. Right. Not only that this will always be present in our lives to some degree, but that there will always be people around that can help us out. Yeah, exactly. And I think with that, I'm going to transition into my last question of the episode, which is, how are you feeling this week? Uh, well, as I said last time, you know, this is the time of year where I'm pretty much sick. I still am, but I feel like I'm on at least a little bit of an upswing. So I'm doing okay. Kind of like always basically okay. Great. Well, okay. And if you have any questions or comments for the KidneyCast, please email us at kidneycast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash kidneycast or Twitter at kidneycast. And all of the episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and give us a rating if you've got the time. That's incredibly helpful. And all the episodes are also available on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Ari, thank you so much for doing the episode with me this week. Sure, thank you. And thank you to everybody out there for listening. <laughs>